Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... The economy is a complex, dynamic system. Any constraint you see at any point in time is not fixed forever. Matt Klein explains inflation to the perplexed, which includes me and, frankly, everyone. There are three things I want to point out before we start today's show. First, according to a survey of public opinion by Pew Research, and this was taken in May, the public views inflation as the single biggest problem facing the country. And and now I'm quoting directly from Pew, no other concern comes close. Second, inflation right now is really high. In fact, we just found out this morning from the latest Consumer Price Index that the prices of the goods and services that people buy are more than 9% higher than they were last year. Third and finally, Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, the Fed, the central bank in charge of managing inflation, the frontline institution tasked with managing inflation, recently said this while speaking on a panel. I think we now understand better how little we understand about inflation. He said that on June 29th. Now, we have previously reflected on this show just how striking it is that even for the people in charge of dealing with it, inflation can be really hard to understand. When inflation is high, is it the Fed's fault? Is it the fault of Congress and the president? Is it Vladimir Putin's fault? Is it greedy corporations? Is it nobody's fault? Just a thing that happens? I wanted to do a show focusing on the sources of this bafflement, this confusion, So I have invited my old friend, Matt Klein, back to the show. Matt writes the terrific Overshoot newsletter, which is my personal favorite place to go for real-time economic analysis and commentary. And he recently finished a two-part series about inflation that tries to understand what's going on and which crucially leaves room for all the possible complex interacting forces that can drive inflation. So we are going to go through his argument, how inflation fits into the wider economic context of the last couple of years. And we're also going to discuss some of the other explanations you might have heard from economists and pundits and politicians for what could be driving inflation and how legit each of those reasons might be. And then finally, we are going to recklessly ask the question, is inflation finally poised to start coming down? One last thing, at the very end of this episode, we have a bunch of fun housekeeping items, including some responses from listeners that we really liked uh, and that we flagged after last week's listener Q&A episode. So please stay tuned for those. Without further ado, here is Matt Klein. Matt Klein, welcome back to The New Bazaar. Cardiff, thank you very much for having me. So Matt, here's what I want to do. I want to spend maybe the first half of the chat just talking about how inflation works and sort of pushing the limits of our actual understanding of how it works. And specifically, I want to zero in on why it is so confusing, why it is so hard to understand. Okay. And then in the second half of the chat, we're going to actually talk about why inflation has gotten to where it is now. In other words, the actual current situation for inflation. So I hope that sounds like fun to you. Absolutely. (laughs) What could be more fun to you, in fact? What possibly is more fun than talking about inflation? (laughs) Uh, And here's where I want to start. So in your recent series on inflation, you had a sentence that I think kind of sums up how inflation works, okay? Not in detail or anything, but sort of at the conceptual theoretical level. And I just want to read the sentence, and then I'd love for you and I to just talk through what all the different components of that sentence are. Okay, so here's what you write, and I'm quoting you now. The job of macroeconomic management is making sure that there is enough nominal spending power available to absorb all that additional production, but not so much that it pushes up prices across the economy, unquote. Take us through what that sentence means and how it relates to the way inflation, high inflation, actually develops. Sure. So the businesses that make all the goods and services we want, they produce real things. Maybe it's a haircut or it's a car or it's a dental checkup or a movie. Those things all have prices. The way we've organized our society that's evolved over thousands of years is things have prices and we use money and credit to buy those things. 
And inflation is when the prices of all the things ends up rising significantly. Not some things, but all the things. Right. So if some things go up and some things go down, but on average, it's the same, that is not inflation. You're talking about a general rise in prices. Exactly. Okay. If the economy were very simple, if we only did one single thing, then inflation would be very simple to explain. It's just there's more money or more spending power, money and credit and everything else, relative to how much stuff there is. So if the only thing that happens in your economy is you grow wheat, and then suddenly there's there's more money and then the price of wheat's going to go up automatically, that's inflation. The real world, of course, is more complicated, and that's why it's very challenging. So you can, if you overgeneralize and simplify and aggregate things, then it's very easy. Oh, well, there's this much stuff. There's this much spending power. If there's an imbalance there, that's the problem. But the reason it gets complicated is because all the different things that people make, how you make it, what, where the money is going, who's going to buy it, that's where it becomes so much more complicated. It's very simple in theory, very complicated when you actually try to apply that to make predictions or understand what's going on. And I want to clarify something, too. When we say nominal spending power, that word nominal is really stupid, right? It's used in economics all the time because we need a word for unadjusted for inflation. It's just the actual amount of money in your bank account, right? It doesn't reflect necessarily what you can buy. That's determined by the prices of the things that you can buy. But it's just the actual dollar figure uh, in your bank account, or it's the actual dollar amount that you have available to you to spend. In that model that you used, you had money and you have wheat. Well, now try to like apply this to the economy, which makes a seemingly infinite variety of goods and services every year, and their prices are always fluctuating. But also, it's not as simple as just more nominal spending power uh, in general. Some of, some of that depends also on who gets the higher nominal spending power and how that money is actually allocated throughout society. Isn't that right? Absolutely. So if you give someone $100 and then they don't buy it for whatever reason, whether it's their preferences or maybe they're a very rich person, they just don't notice the extra $100, uh, that's going to have a very different impact than if you give the same $100 to someone who immediately is going to go to the store and buy something because maybe they've been holding out because they didn't have $100 and it really makes a difference for their ability to buy what they want. There's a lot of different kinds of constraints that can show up that will prevent a very simple, this much money, this much inflation, which is why, in general, whether it's economists or whether it's central bankers who are in charge of these things, they don't look generally at just how much money there is. It's not the money that's available, it's the spending. It could be, you know, you rack up a credit card bill. That's not new money, right? You always had the credit card available to you. You know, you do a cash out refi on your mortgage and like that's not going to show up in a sort of a conventional measure, but it's important for understanding what's driving spending. Yeah, you, you make a really interesting point, which is that spending power is quite difficult to measure. It's just a hard thing to measure because it can include all these different things. It's not just the money that you have in the bank. It could be how much you have left before you hit your credit card limit. That is also spending power. Uh, it could be your ability to, I don't know, sell something really easily that could allow you to buy things, right? Like that also could, by some measures, qualify as spending power. So we've already identified two potential sources of confusion, right? One is that it's really hard to measure how much spending power people have. And the other is that we don't always know the effects of that potential spending power on actual spending behavior, right? There's a difference there, I think. You know, if you give $100, as you said, to somebody who doesn't need it and just saves the money, okay, that is still $100 more in spending power, but it doesn't mean that it's going to actually get spent and drive up prices that way, right? So those are already two points of confusion. I want to get to a third point of confusion, which is about the potential effects of economic policy. So economic policy can do something to give people throughout society more spending power, but it's not always easy to measure, okay, economic policy just gave people throughout the country, let's say $500 billion in new spending power. What's going to be the effect of that in driving up inflation. We can say very generally that all things equal, it will drive up inflation, but we don't know how much, right? Like that's a really hard thing to track. And economists have all these ways of estimating it, but it's really just guessing, no? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Because the challenge is, you know, there's two sides of the equation, right? There's how much spending power you have. There's also how much stuff is available. And that's not constant either. If it were the case that every business is always running at its absolute maximum of what it can do, every haircut appointment is booked, every factory is running full out, then sure, we know exactly how this would work. 
But that's not actually the world we live in. There's always some spare capacity. That spare capacity is not evenly distributed across sectors. And given how much variety and diversity there is within the economy and what kinds of you know, products people choose to buy, how those capacity constraints or, or spare capacity are distributed, it's very difficult. You can't just say like, oh, X number of dollars leads to this change in the price level. It's not going to flow through that cleanly, which is why it's very complicated to analyze these things. It's why, historically, the best predictor of inflation has generally been whatever it was last year, <laughs> plus like some random error term, where whatever it was last year is basically just this constant of two. Uh, like for the past 25 years, you know, before the pandemic, that's basically the best way to predict inflation. And economists have written papers about this. All these other more sophisticated models are basically useless because of, you know, all these confounding factors kind of canceling each other out. Until, frankly, like that model also became useless, uh, at least as it applies over the last couple of years, right? Because suddenly we have 9% inflation. It's not 2% inflation. Right. So uh, in any case, I want to identify a fourth source of confusion and a fourth reason why perhaps Chair Powell has said that we now understand how little we understand about inflation, which is that economists are always looking for the relationships between different variables. And when it comes to inflation, for example, there is a relationship that's thought to exist between how the labor market is doing and its potential impact on inflation as well. And specifically, the idea here is that if unemployment goes really low and people have no problem getting jobs and companies are just desperate to hire people, that they'll start essentially offering higher wages. And as that happens, people get more spending power. And as that happens, then maybe they'll they'll spend more money out in the economy. They'll look to buy more goods, and that'll push up the prices of things as well. That relationship has, uh, I think, been increasingly questioned in the last couple of years. But it's something that economists, uh, I think, were using as a little bit of a guide for a long time. And now they're seeing that it's not necessarily a super reliable guide. It can be maybe one variable that helps to understand what's happening with inflation, but it's more complicated than just, hey, unemployment is at this level, and now that means that inflation is going to go up by this amount. It's a lot trickier than that, right? Absolutely. Actually, as you said, this is something that was, uh, it was a view that became popular in the 60s and 70s, and by the time of the 2010s was already if not completely discredited, at least being seriously questioned. I remember actually going to a conference, I don't know what it was, maybe 2017 or something, where you had, now she's the vice chairman of the Fed, Lael Brainerd, giving a talk about, you know, we actually, doesn't seem like this is as any predictive power whatsoever. It's essentially, <laughs> it's, it's if, if anything, worse than useless to be looking at the unemployment rate as a predictor of inflation. And in fact, if you look at what the unemployment rate was in the United States before the pandemic, it's actually slightly lower than it is now, and inflation before the pandemic was very low. In fact, it was so low that the Fed's big concern in the years running up to the pandemic was inflation is too low. That was the big concern that people were having. When unemployment was lower than it is now. So I completely agree with you. That's not a useful way of thinking about you know how all this stuff plays out. It, it certainly is possible to see the mechanism, as, as you said, like it sounds intuitive of people are getting a lot of wage increases. They're going to spend the money. That's going to price things up. But there are a lot of other factors too, right? Like normally, if people are getting a lot of wage increases, it's because they're producing more. So if productivity is going up, if businesses are able to generate more goods and services, then you're going to have more spending, but you're also going to have more stuff. And so the effect on prices would be you know, zero, more or less. I mean, obviously, there's like a lot Possibly of Possibly a wash. Yeah, I get yeah, it. I it get could it. easily yeah. be a wash. Right, exactly. It could easily be nothing. I mean, the sort of stereotypical model of what you want for an economy is you have low unemployment, stable, but low unemployment. You have growth, and you basically don't have inflation because, you know, there's a balance between how much people are, are getting paid and how much they're producing, and, and, what, and, and that's all fine. You can also see other things that could change, right? The share of revenues that businesses generate that goes to workers is not fixed by some iron law. You could easily have a shift one way or the other that would show up in terms of wage growth either being significantly faster than price growth or slower than price growth. To what extent would people choose to spend any extra income versus not? That's not necessarily fixed over time either. So you combine all those things together, and it's very difficult to see how the unemployment rate, inflation rate connection is useful for making predictions. And Powell, to his credit, actually was one of the people Powell and Brainerd together, really, were the, the people who I think drove a big shift in the years immediately preceding the pandemic to move away from that. 
And I think that that's a big part of when people say that, that we don't have a kind of a good models for how inflation works. Because you can talk to you know, economists from an older generation who are very wedded to these models, and they say, oh, well, it has to do that. And there isn't really evidence that it has to work that way. I mean, the, the flip side is you can also have higher excessively fast inflation even when the unemployment rate is substantially higher than what it is now. The, you know, the, it kind of sure. goes both ways. But the idea that there's sort of this straightforward relationship, I don't think it really holds water. Yeah, let me tease apart a couple of things you noted there because you covered a lot of ground. So you just mentioned that just a couple of years before the pandemic, unemployment was just 3.6%, super low, or 3.5% even, yeah. super low. And yet inflation was also really low at 1.5%. Well, right now, the unemployment rate is right in that same area. It's 3.6%, just about the same. But inflation is super high. So we can see that that relationship changes, that in one time, in one era, depending on what's happening with the economy, a very low unemployment rate is consistent with still very low inflation. And in another time, a very low unemployment rate is consistent with very high inflation. And so it's not that there's no relationship at all between unemployment and inflation. It's that it's really hard and really confusing and baffling to figure out where that place is, where the labor market and the unemployment rate starts to actually have a big effect on inflation. It's just hard to know. It may not be possible to know with any sort of degree of useful precision. Is that is that about right? Do you largely agree with that? You know, I'm, I might even go further, actually, which is, okay. you know, conceptually, if someone is working, they're doing something that's valuable. And if they're not working, then, you know, they're not. Right? So in theory, if more people are working, that should mean there's more goods and services available, then that should be a wash. You know, another big issue, right, is that the cost of labor is often not really that tied to the final goods prices for a lot of things people buy, right? A lot of stuff is very capital intensive. If you think about energy, right, like the price of gasoline is partly dependent on the wages that are paid to people who work in oil fields and oil refineries and on, on ships transporting stuff. But that's not most of it, right? Like most of those costs are other things. It's like the material inputs and, and everything else. And you can go this way for a lot of categories. And, you know, this is why part of why it gets so challenging to kind of tie this yeah. relationship. It's not even just like it's hard to know where it is in real time, but like I'm not even sure that conceptually this is a useful concept at all for that reason. It just really depends on the, on the mix of what people are doing and the mix of what they want to buy. And all this stuff is, a, you know, very, you know, okay. very complicated. Yeah. I think that that maybe is just slightly further than I would go. Like, I do think there is still a relationship between the health of the labor market and wages and inflation. I can imagine a scenario, for instance, where the labor market is so strong that employers really are competing to hire people and they pay them, even though those workers maybe still need to be trained up for a little while or something. And so for a while, the wages they're getting sort of outpace the amount that they can produce. But of course, that can change. It's not like any of this stuff is fixed. And in any case, I just wanted to give some sense of how hard it is to pinpoint these things, right? And that this is a source of confusion. Here's another relationship, which is the relationship between what you brought up, which is spending power and the ability of the economy to produce enough goods and services to absorb all that extra spending power. So for example, if you have, I don't know, two people who make a lot more money this year and now decide they want to buy cars and the economy doesn't produce enough cars to keep up. Let's say the economy only produces one extra car. Okay. You could see how the price of cars would go up because those two people are going to bid against each other for the one car. Okay. But if the cost of cars goes up, then that sends a signal to the automakers that they should make more cars because they can sell them for a higher price now. And so it may be that at first the cost of cars goes up, but that over time the economy responds and makes more cars and then the rising cost of cars starts to ease a little bit and slows down. You know what I mean? Like there can be a relationship between the supply side uh, and the demand side, which is the spending power. Uh, what do you think about that? I, I completely agree. I think that you know the economy is a it is a complex, dynamic system. Businesses respond to what they are experiencing in terms of their demand for sales, and they can invest in increasing capacity. Any constraint you see at any point in time is not fixed forever, because. You know, as long as there is a profit motive, as long as there's ingenuity, as long as there is the capability of, of improvement and, and innovation and, and in trying to do things, like we're going to we're going to fix a lot of problems with time. 
You see this under all sorts of contexts. I mean, as you said, if there's more demand for cars than there are cars that are currently being produced, the normal healthy response, if businesses believe that demand will be sustained, they're going to invest in building the capacity to build more. And better, by the way. And, and better. better, possibly. Like, they'll right. try to invest in their systems to make cars more efficiently as well. Absolutely. And this also applies, by the way, to conversations about, you know, wages, right? I mean, the normal response of businesses when their labor costs go up is, you know, aside from trying to raise prices, is also how can they figure out how to save on labor? And there it turns out there are a lot of ways you can do that. You can have your workers be more efficient. You can improve your processes, you can you can buy machines. There are lots of things that can be done. You can train them. You can pay to have yeah, them trained, which exactly. in the past may not have been economic, but now it is because right. you know because the price of labor has gone up. So you now invest in training them, and then they become more efficient workers. Exactly. Yeah. There are lots of benign responses to this, uh, and so I completely agree. It also works in the other way too. Um, you know, the, the the not benign scenario, right? Which is if you have a period of time where there isn't enough spending for whatever reason then businesses will respond that way. And they'll say, well, I guess we don't need all this stuff. <laughs> they'll cut investment. You know, you look at what happened after 2008. What happened there was that a lot of businesses, they said, well, our customers have stopped buying things in any remotely way they were before. We're not going to invest anymore. Or we're going to actually cut our capacity to invest. And for a lot of those businesses, that turned out to be the right decision for themselves. And for the economy, it was a disaster because it meant that we had the less capacity to produce. The better situation would have been more spending, more stuff, as opposed to less spending, less stuff. And it put us in a very <laughs> bad situation going into the pandemic because all that capacity that could have been there wasn't. I mean, some of it, this goes back even further, right? You look at like the U.S. chip industry, right, for making semiconductors, all this stuff. Semiconductor chips. Semiconductors, yeah. Right. Semi yeah, sorry, not, not potato chips, semiconductors, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> integrated circuits, I think, is probably the, the, the technical term, right? <laughs> sure. Basically, what happened is in the 90s, you have this, and the 80s, a huge run-up in demand, tons of investment in both physical manufacturing plants and in research. You get to 2000, and that basically peaks. And then what happens, you have this long 20-plus-year period where demand for semis, at least from the U.S. Chips. The chip, chips made, chips, chips made yeah. in the U.S., right, sorry. Chips made in the U.S. <laughs> basically kind of flatlines at best, if not going down. And so, you know, the real value of those things goes up because, you know, the chips are more powerful or whatever. But, like, the fact is that in terms of the amount of money being spent, it peaked in 2000, more or less. And then the investment in physical plant and production went down. And it meant that a lot of the most cutting-edge stuff is not being made here and cannot be made here. You see this with housing after 2006, six, seven, and all the support industries for there, like making lumber. You've seen this lots of places. You know, we get worse off. You know, there's an analogy I'm going to shamelessly steal from someone, which is um, weightlifting. If you lift heavy weights close to your maximum, you do the proper form and all that, you will get stronger and you can lift heavier weights over time. If your reaction when you first try to lift a weight is this is too hard and you don't do it, then your ability to lift weights will at best stay flat or will go down. And yeah. that's basically how the economy is. Like the ability to produce is a large part in function of the demand and the strains that are placed on the production system. If you don't have enough demand, you're not going to produce enough. If you do, then hopefully you'll produce more. Uh, but that's how it works. Yeah, I mean, to, to sort of synthesize everything you just said, going into the pandemic, we had just experienced about 20 years of quite sluggish, unimpressive economic growth, including a quite horrendous financial crisis in the middle of that stretch, 2008, 2009. And one of the problems was that because the economic growth was so unimpressive and because spending power was not growing at a very healthy pace throughout that time, there was no incentive for companies to invest in the capacity to make more stuff. And you just mentioned some of those areas, like, for example, semiconductor chips. I would also note, by the way, that Maybe we underinvested both the private sector and possibly the public sector in energy production. And if we had been investing in the capacity to produce more energy all this time, and I don't just mean 
oil or fossil fuel-based energy, I also mean in alternatives, uh, you know, if you're worried about environmental concerns in things like solar and wind and so on, and in electric vehicles, and in building out the infrastructure to accommodate these other kinds of energy production, that would be really helpful right now when the cost of energy is so expensive. But we didn't, and so now we're in a situation where we're trying to like rapidly figure things out in an emergency instead of having addressed this during peacetime, economic peacetime. So to speak, right? Right. I mean, I, I just want to add, because it's very relevant. I mean, the, the name of the newsletter I write is called The Overshoot. And if you don't- Yes. If you haven't, if you haven't read the, the, <laughs> the piece where I explain this, you might be like, what a weird name. But so the, if you look at a chart, a long-term chart showing the value of stuff that's produced and consumed in this country, it's remarkably stable over time from basically the end of World War II until 2006. Remarkably stable. I mean, obviously, there's some ups and downs, but it always gets back basically to the path that it had been on. Yeah. You get to 2006, 2007, and you get just derailed. The financial crisis is severe, but even worse is the fact there's no recovery from it. And if you compare where we actually were on the eve of the pandemic to where we would have been if that 1947 to 2006 per person trend had been maintained— it's like an, on the eve of the financial crisis, you mean, Matt? Right. The, the, sorry. Yeah. If you compare the, the right the trend that went from the end of World War II to the eve of the financial crisis, you compare where we actually were before the pandemic to that trend. It was like an eighteen percent shortfall, which is enormous. I mean, eighteen percent—that is huge. We we all were producing, consuming almost a fifth less than you know we would have been if there hadn't been that period of time, and so that had severe consequence, I think, for for our economy, for our society. And, you know, that that was, you know, what I called the undershoot. And, you know, the reason I called, the, you know, what I write the overshoot is saying, like, you know, we need we need to do a lot to kind of, I mean, getting back to that trend would be great. Uh, it also means the recent pre-pandemic trend was not a good benchmark. And, you know, maybe we should try to figure out how to go past that trend, you know, compensate. <laughs> All right. Matt, we, we went off on a little bit of a tangent here. So let me actually connect everything that you just said to inflation right now. And I think the idea here is that because of that underinvestment in the past, in the productive capacity of the economy, okay, when we're faced with a situation right now where people have more spending power, but the productive capacity of the economy has been damaged, we're in a worse situation. And we pay for that past underinvestment with higher inflation right now because we're not making as an economy enough goods and services to keep up with higher spending power. Okay. I just wanted to connect it to inflation. And here we can start transitioning into the current inflation situation. There was a huge spending response from the government to try to essentially preserve as much of the economy as it could throughout the COVID pandemic. And I want to just list a few facts, which I think are, are just astonishing. Number one, the U.S., has spent a total of about $6 trillion in trying to fight the COVID downturn. The entire rest of the world has spent $11 trillion. These are This is according to the IMF. In other words, more than one out of every $3 spent throughout the world to fight the COVID downturn has been spent by the U.S. government. That's on top of all the things that the Federal Reserve did at the very beginning of the pandemic, which included, of course, lowering interest rates down to zero. It included setting up a lot of these lending facilities that we're definitely not going to get into to make sure that there wasn't a financial crisis. And I think when we look at all those steps, you can make the argument that it went far enough that it contributed to a lot of the inflation that we have right now. But at the same time, all that extra spending essentially helped facilitate the adjustment in the private sector from the stuff that was shut down to new sectors of the economy to respond to give people what they newly wanted, like exercise equipment and stuff to set up a home office and laundry machines and groceries, okay? And then to facilitate also the adjustment back to other parts of the economy when the economy started to reopen in other places, like spending on restaurants so as they reopened and other services uh, that we have now. And so, yeah, maybe it's contributing to the inflation now, but it seems like a certain amount of inflation tolerance was also the kind of the price, so to speak, that you pay for helping the private sector to adapt the way it has all throughout. And to get the unemployment rate, for instance, back down to 3.6%, to keep people employed, uh, is that essentially what we're talking about here? 
Yes. One of the things I wrote about it in pieces that you cited before is you can look at forecasts that were being made by people like the OECD and the IMF before the pandemic, like right before the pandemic, basically. It's very convenient they publish these things like December 2019, November 2019. You can say like, okay, where do they think, you know, the U.S. economy, the European economy, Japan, China, all these big countries, where were they going to be at like the end of 2021? And then you can compare that forecast to where we actually are. And unsurprisingly, everyone is a little bit, is below. I mean, the pandemic had a cost. Many, many people died. There was lots of disruption. It's not surprising. We're all worse off. Huge disruptions, of course. It would be weird if that were not the case. Yet, if you look, the U.S., of all the major countries, is the one that is closest by a significant amount to the pre-pandemic forecast, which suggests to me that despite the fact that we kind of a middling public health response in terms of, you know, how many people died and got sick and so forth, uh, we compensated for that with the quality of the economic policy response. And, you know, the, the countries that I think are, are, if I remember, are like the closest below us are countries that did much better on dealing with the public health side, countries like, you know, Korea, Japan, and Australia. And so the fact that we didn't do nearly as well as they did at actually controlling the virus, and yet nevertheless did better than everyone at getting the economy closer to where it would have been based on the sort of pre-pandemic forecast, I think is a testament to the effectiveness of what we did. I'm not saying it was perfect, not saying it couldn't have been done better, but I think relative to the criticism that some people are making, it was too much or put things in perspective here, like could have been a lot worse. Yeah. And by the way, I, you know, we're going to talk in a second about the criticism of, of whether or not it was too much. Um, but let's also remember that there were other mistakes that were possible too, right? Like for example, too little, you know? I mean, I think in some ways it was too little, too late relative to the speed of what was happening. You look at things like motor vehicle production, you look at car rental, you look at airlines, you look at oil, those are all sectors where they responded to the initial severe, severe downturn and said, oh, <laughs> you know, we're not making it sell anymore. everything, yeah. sell everything, lay people off, stop. Even when it started to look like, you know, there would be a recovery in demand, they were very cautious until it was too late. And then that created all sorts of problems down the line. And we can get into that more in detail later if you want. But I mean, I think that in many, not all of the inflation we've had, but a lot of it is actually due to the relative conservatism of businesses that was reasonable based on both their past experience and the policy response as it was happening in real time. Yeah. And so that, I think, is really important to, to emphasize when people say, like, oh, you know, we did too much or too little or whatever. Like, it's important to look at, like, what exactly was happening when and what the responses were. Yeah, and I, I, I should emphasize, Matt, a lot of what you and I are saying on this show is being hotly debated all across the economics landscape right now. I mean, economists are really going back and forth on a lot of it. And so there is still a lot of confusion, a lot of struggle to understand that I think we're all experiencing now. But I want to just point out three facts that we can say for sure, okay? These are, these are very broad-based, but I, I find that they're useful in terms of just anchoring things. So first of all, because of the big policy response from the federal government and from the Federal Reserve, incomes have grown at a faster pace than they were growing even before the pandemic. So incomes have successfully been more than replaced. They've grown a lot. So in terms of spending power, that has been more than replaced. So that's just fact number one. Fact number two, in terms of the quantity of actual stuff that people are buying, after about a year in which it was way below what the pre-pandemic pace was, it has returned to the pre-pandemic pace. It hasn't actually gone above it, okay? But people are roughly buying the same quantity of stuff that they would be buying anyways if the pandemic had essentially never happened and that pace from before the pandemic had continued, which I think is very interesting, okay? And then third, and this is, I think, uncontroversial, multiple successive shocks have damaged the economy's ability to produce enough stuff to keep up with that increased spending power, especially in the second year of the pandemic. And here you can point to the initial COVID wave. You can point to successive COVID waves afterwards, Delta, Omicron, the new variants, et cetera. And of course, now the Ukraine-Russia war, which has really accelerated the upward climb in commodities prices uh, and specifically in food and energy prices. And so we can at least anchor ourselves on those three things. And I think all of those things, again, 
especially after the first year of the pandemic, are all sort of inflationary. We can at least start to understand where the inflation is coming from using your basic conceptual theory of how inflation works, which I I also agree is entirely the correct one. Uh, But anyways, what do you think about those three facts? What more can we say about that? And, And especially emphasizing the point that in the first year after the pandemic, inflation remained quite low. The real move up in inflation started in roughly February or March of 2021 and has continued until now. First of all, I agree. All these are very important facts we have to bear in mind. And I think what's really interesting is when inflation was stable in the first year of the pandemic, it was a very weird sort of stability because, as you said, the amount of stuff that people bought went way down. And you know what that means, essentially, is that people were buying a lot less things, both in, in real terms and they're spending less dollars on it, and yet the prices were rising as they would have been before. And so, essentially, that's like a very clear situation of, well, less spending, less stuff— We're obviously worse off, but the inflation looks like it's fine. And then the impact of that on individual people's finances, not their well-being, but their finances, was offset by the fact that government was giving them a lot of money to make up for it. So the reason why incomes were so much higher in 2020 than they were before was not because people were earning more money from their jobs. That's not what happened for basically anybody. What happened is that the government wrote a lot of checks and unemployment insurance benefits were generous and things of that nature. And people didn't spend that money, though. That's the important thing. They got the money. And some people may have spent it, but in the aggregate, in the aggregate, it was obviously not spent because total consumer spending was much lower in in that year than before. What happened basically starting around March of 2021, when you had a bunch of money, new money dispersed to households through the the bill that was passed at the very end of December and then the American Rescue Plan Act of, of March 21, and you also have a situation where finally the economy really starts reopening because people are getting vaccinated. And so March 21, that's when you start seeing that spending rises not crazy high, but basically back to the trend path, as you said, that is when you start seeing also inflation taking off. So even though that spending basically just goes back to the trend at that point, yet that's when we start seeing inflation. And so that makes me think, again, like it's kind of something else is going on here. It's not like the money was being spent because people's incomes in terms of what they're getting from their job, whatever, was basically growing in line with all this. The money that had been accumulated and dispersed was not in the aggregate showing up anywhere but I think that's a really helpful way for thinking about, you know, what what was going on over that period. The point about how spending power went up and is above the trend from before versus the actual spending on goods and services is only back to the previous trend is something I just want to zoom in on for a second because it's something that I struggle a little bit to understand its relationship with inflation for a second. So, I mean, I can obviously understand why giving people way more money could be inflationary, right? The fact that we have the inflation that we have, even though people are only spending in real terms, right, adjusted for inflation at about the same pace as they were before the pandemic is interesting to me. I think actually in dollar terms, they're spending a little bit more than the pre-pandemic pace, right? That's right. Now they're, yeah. Although it's very recent. Right, right. Totally. So the, the question to me is, I guess, like, is it, the case that because inflation is so high that people aren't spending more of all this extra income that they have now? Or is it the case that like that higher dollar spending is itself responsible for inflation? Or are those two things kind of symbiotic? You know what I mean? Like, can you can you offer some clarity on, on how to think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, and I mean, people started noticing this, I guess, almost two years ago at this point, this idea that so much money was showing up that wasn't getting spent. And the question was, where did it go? And, you know, I've written about this quite a bit. And essentially, it seems to be mostly that people just have more money in bank accounts and in money market funds now. Savings. That actually, yeah, savings, right. Exactly. And that most of that money, not all of it, most of it is that people at sort of the top of the income distribution. And it's not to say that people lower down weren't better off. They got more actual stuff and their bank balances are definitely higher than before and they paid down debt. So everyone's better off. And, and actually their of, wages grew a little faster than people at the top, Substantially right? faster, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, there's a, yeah, substantially faster. Um, and so you put all this together and, you know, you can see how in the aggregate this money didn't get spent. And like, quite frankly, if someone has already had a lot of money and then they can't take any vacations for a year, they're going to end up with more money because they just weren't spending money on things and because their incomes didn't go down because government policy was successful. They ended up with a lot of extra cash on hand. 
And to the extent that those people aren't really spending it because they're just like, well, okay, it's fine. I'll hold on to it for whatever reason. That's not going to necessarily be inflationary. It is really interesting that there's this huge influx of money. And until really the past couple months, spending didn't respond in any kind of obvious way. It was basically all saved in the aggregate. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's really, that, that, that just goes to show that the situation of the pandemic was very unusual. We do have one kind of very useful, I think, example in the past that is relatable, which is World War II. In World War II, you have a lot of stuff that's not available because of rationing. You also have a lot of people suddenly getting hired and paid a lot to do things. And production has shifted from civilian production to, to military production. You have a lot of people drafted as soldiers to fight in the war. So what happens in World War II in the United States is that incomes, I think they basically double between like 1940 and 1945. So that's a big difference. What happens is there's this huge increase in what people have saved. So we've, we've saw that movie before. And then after the war ends, there's normalization. There's this big shift the other way, right? All the stuff that people couldn't buy during the war, you know, cars, houses, appliances, gasoline, all that stuff suddenly becomes way in demand. The stuff that people had been buying during the war um, that, you know, because it was the stuff that they could buy, like jewelry and dinners and, uh, you know, certain kinds of entertainment and things like that, that, that went down, relatively speaking. There's this big shift. And unsurprisingly, you have this big kind of one-off jump in prices at the end of World War II. But then it stops because, you know, things kind of normalize. And I still think that's kind of basically the model that we should have for what's going on now. Obviously, we've had a lot more kind of continuous disruptions. It's not like a war where there's like, it is on and then it's off. But I think in general, it's like a very useful way of thinking about how you can have a situation where people's money, their incomes, and in theory, their spending power goes up a lot. But if their ability to actually spend it, you know, doesn't, then that doesn't necessarily have the effect on inflation that you'd think. Okay, I want to transition now to talking about the various possible factors for the nine plus percent inflation that we've had over the past year. Okay. So we've just done a lot of background, obviously, on how inflation works. And I think we've started to kind of explain what's happened in the couple of years since COVID. And here I want to start talking about whether or not the excess demand that we just described, that big policy response, which I think you and I both regard in very positive terms, right? That that was way better than an inadequate policy response, even if it's resulted in a certain amount of inflation. But how much do we attribute the current spike in inflation to that versus how much we can attribute to the successive shocks to the supply side of the economy, to the productive side of the economy? I'm sort of open to an all of the above story, right? But you've argued that it is the shocks to the supply side of the economy that are responsible for the preponderance of the inflation problem that we have right now. Uh, so why don't you just like start there? Like, why is it that the supply side is more to blame than the policy response uh, in giving people more money than they otherwise would have had if there had been no policy? Sure. So the way I do this and is just, you know, we can look at what specifically are the prices that contributed the most to the increase in prices. So uh, you look sort of since the, be the beginning of the pandemic, you compare to like what the pre-pandemic trend was, prices are about 10% higher than they otherwise would have been. And it turns out that of that 10% gap, excess inflation, about two-thirds of that are attributable to three things. Anything related to motor vehicles, energy, and groceries. So like motor vehicles is a very straightforward story. I don't know why more people don't just look at these numbers, but the <laughs> when the pandemic happened, auto manufacturers in the U.S. and around the world stopped production, just completely turned it off. And you can see this very clearly. The, the Federal Reserve tracks every month the amount of motor vehicles assembled in the United States. It went to essentially zero in April. After that, they did not restart production at the level that it was before. So that means that the cumulative amount of cars that were made was very quickly, way below what it would have been. And on top of that, because they were cautious about restarting production, they obviously were cautious about ordering parts. And so, in fact, they canceled a bunch of orders and didn't make orders they would have made. And so the result is that, as of now, you are in a situation where there's something like 4.2 million fewer cars and light trucks that were assembled in the United States compared to what would have been the case if, like, the 2019 pattern had continued. That's a lot. 
right? A typical year of auto sales is like 17 million. So not having 4 million available is going to have a huge impact. And that's going to show up in prices somewhere. And it has. Um, I mean, initially, it was hidden because the car rental companies, again, this is very related to this, they were like, well, no one wants to rent a car anymore because no one's got any vacation. And also, we're squeezed for cash and we don't have any money to pay our bills. Because, you know, despite the general size and rapidity of the policy response, it wasn't good enough to prevent this. So they're like, well, we're just going to dump everything. So they sold a ton of their fleet vehicles into the used car market. And so consumers are able to get cars, even though producers weren't making them for a while. But then you get to like 2021, and what happens is people are traveling again. The, the rental car companies think, well, turns out we need the fleet vehicles, and people want to use our stuff. So two things happen. One, they go like crazy into the used car market, try to buy things back, uh, which pushes up the price of used cars by an enormous amount. And they raise the prices of rental cars, because until that happens, they don't have fleet vehicles. And so as of now, the prices of both used cars and rental cars are about 50% higher than before the pandemic. Which is enormous. <laughs> that's astonishing. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, right. it, it just, you know, and to put this, I mean, this is just very simple basic math, but like if you were to buy a really nice used car actually for, let's say, $12,000 just a couple of years ago, that car now is $18,000, right? And if you were going to buy like a really sharp car for, you know, 20 grand, now that's 30 grand. Like this is in two years, yeah. that's an incredible amount of inflation in, in yeah. used cars. Yeah, Exactly. And of course, it also is going to flow through to new, new cars too, right? Because initially, again, people right. were kind of able to use used cars to make up for like now all car stuff is expensive. And so until the only way you're going to fix this is either people to stop buying cars, which is probably only going to happen if you like impose some kind of severe financial constraints on them, with, you know, have an economic downturn. Or producers are going to have to make a lot of cars. And just to show this is not just a U.S.-specific phenomenon, one thing that's really interesting is that imports of motor vehicle and parts also were depressed and, and, and have generally been depressed. I mean, they've started to tick up a little recently, but this is a global problem of, of car underproduction. Because if it was only the U.S., like, we could just buy cars that are made somewhere else, right? Or, like, if it were like a U.S.-specific thing, like, we have too much money to buy cars, like, we'd be buying other people's cars. That's not what's happening. There just aren't enough globally. And that's a, a huge problem. And, and, and that set of categories alone is responsible for like about a third of all of the excess inflation we've had since the start of the pandemic. A third. So that's like a significant thing. Another big one is energy. And part of that there can be explained by, again, what happened in the pandemic. So initially, people just stopped traveling. You stop manufacturing, you stop getting on planes. Well, that means demand for gasoline is going to go way down. Demand for jet fuel is going to go way down. Demand for diesel, which has industrial applications, goes way down. And so what happens? Well, one thing is that if you run an oil refinery, you think, you know, if, if there was an old refinery you were thinking about, you know, a choice of like, do I just mothball this or do I invest in replacing it and maintaining it? You think, eh, why am I spending the money now? Who knows I'm going to need it? Uh, especially if you're not sure you're going to have the cash available anyway. If you are a driller, you think, well, I don't need to be drilling more. I'm going to lay off all the people who know how to do this stuff. In fact, what happened more extreme was that in the U.S., you just had enormous waves of bankruptcies, uh, and a lot of companies just went out of business. And so then when it came to the point that we actually realized that, you know, we didn't have oil demand down by half forever, that it was hard to necessarily get everything back, that all the drilling rigs that had been left unmaintained or canalized for parts to keep the good ones running, it suddenly meant that there were fewer things available. It meant that it was harder to get the crews back that knew what they were going to do in the right places. It meant that the various parts you needed weren't around. And so all of that meant that the supply response of the U.S. oil and gas sector was lower than it would have been when prices started going back up. And then, so understandably, that means energy prices have gone up a lot since then, and that flows through to other things. So if you can't get natural gas, maybe like you're going to buy coal, because a lot of power plants that work on one can work on work on the other. And, you know, that flows through, again, like the electricity costs and heating costs and the overall effect on inflation is going to be quite substantial. That is a very convincing argument that the supply side damages have had a big influence on inflation. Does that necessarily rule out the explanation that the policy to boost incomes, all the spending, the stimulus from the government, from the Federal Reserve in the last couple of years has also had a big role to play? Even though, again, I hasten to add, that is the right kind of mistake, right? To have an, a mistake that's too much stimulus rather than too little is, in my opinion, the right kind of mistake, but still possibly one of the explanations. What do you think? Yeah, I think the interesting question is, you know, this is back to like why I framed this as essentially a choice. Is Obviously, if there had been no money spent at all, then you would have had less inflation. But we also would have all been worse off in kind of very meaningful 
ways. And I think for it to have been an actual mistake, you'd have to have said like, well, we know what the balance of risks were and the risk was not of insufficient money going out the door, but of too much. But like, I think there's a very good case for at the time that this was being debated at the beginning of 2021, when the vaccine rollout was still being slower than I think what people are anticipating and all sorts of other problems were happening, it wasn't obvious that like the balance of risks was that the economy would recover too quickly and there'd be too much inflation. So, I mean, policy obviously had a role, but the question is whether we interpret that as like they just messed up and gave people too much money versus, well, we had a choice to make here about, you know, getting incomes back on track as best as possible and getting overall spending back on track versus, you know, not doing that and having other problems down the road. So to the extent that we can identify supply, specific supply-constrained sectors as being responsible for much of the inflation, obviously it's not the case that they're responsible for all of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, like you said, I have to look at like the totality of the picture and like, I mean, going so far as to say it was a mistake, I think is more... Uh, you know, tougher judgment, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but by, 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 I should put mistake in, in kind of air quotes there in the sense of the size of these packages rather than like the spe- specific right. packages themselves. I also agree totally that it's a bit naive to think that economic policy can be calibrated so precisely as to fine tune exactly how much money is going to end up being spent because policy is always the result of compromise. It's always the result of, you know, all these different like interest groups, like getting in there and giving their feedback. It's the result of the advice that policymakers might get from economists and from pundits, and they all disagree, right? So that by the time you get a package or a series of packages, it's the result of this very chaotic process. And so to think that you can like just nail it perfectly, even if we had perfect knowledge of inflation, which we don't, to think that right. the package itself would be fine-tuned and calibrated so beautifully is just, uh, is just I think, a bit silly, you know? Um, so, again, when I talk about, like, spending versus no spending, to me, that's actually closer to the real debate than, oh, the exact amount or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. And also, it's not like I've seen anyone seriously make the case that if the March 2021 package had been, you know, $1 trillion instead of $1.9 trillion, that that would have made all the difference or, you know, I mean, the idea that even if there weren't all those very real issues that you pointed to, I still don't think you could have calibrated it correctly (laughs) because (laughs) of all the complexities of what was going on in the economy and all the things we've discovered about like, you know, how difficult, you know, the the mismatches that were going on between what people wanted to buy and what was available and what businesses had done, you know, the previous year and everything else. And that just makes it very challenging. And so you sort of have to say like, okay, well, what's what's the best we can do given those constraints? Okay. And one last question on this topic of whether demand or supply is more responsible for what's happened. One of the theories is that if you boost incomes by enough, if you stimulate the economy by enough, that yes, you have these supply side problems like the sudden you know, inability of car makers to make enough cars, but that people have those higher incomes and so they would just shift that money to buying something else and then inflation and that other thing they buy would go up by a lot anyways and so that the effect on inflation might end up being the same, right? Uh, So what do you think about that issue that essentially the macroeconomic policy of boosting incomes defeats the microeconomic idea that there are these specific things happening in the economy that boost inflation? So I have a lot of sympathy for that view, and I think actually it kind of goes the other way around, which is that, you know, there was an issue of just not enough cars available. It's not even that people wanted to buy more cars. There just weren't cars available. But what's interesting is that outside of those categories, it wasn't as if people just, like, decided to switch and buy something else. I mean, that's what's interesting about kind of the the total data we have on, on consumer spending. Consumer spending wasn't particularly unusual in its behavior until really a couple of months ago, that until then... Consumer spending in dollar terms was at best on the trend that was pre-pandemic. So it wasn't like there was any kind of crazy spending. The fact that that amount of spending, which was very normal and unremarkable, was translating into inflation was a function, I believe, of the fact that the things that people wanted to buy were not being produced in the right amounts and that was showing up in, in prices. And so to the extent that people just would shift and bid up price of other things, uh, I mean, that's really what you saw in 2020, more than 2021. But like that wasn't hasn't really been the story, you know, more recently. And so possible that could change. 
but in general, that's not really what we're seeing here. Um, I guess the one kind of interesting thing that that is fits in with this is, I mean, like wage growth, that definitely has picked up quite a bit. Not to the point that I think is consistent with the inflation rates we've been seeing, which is one reason why people are upset about it. But, you know, it does suggest that sort of underlying inflation has probably gone from, if before it was like one and a half, two percent, maybe now it's like three, four percent, that kind of thing. When you say underlying inflation, you mean in the absence of all of these supply shocks, like the Ukraine-Russia war and yeah, the stuff happening exactly. in the auto sector, that just the based pandemic, on, yeah. yeah, just based in the pandemic, of course, that just based on the stimulative policy that we've gotten, if we hadn't had all those other supply shocks, we would still have 4% inflation, which is definitely higher than what it was before, but it's not the problematic 9% inflation that we're having now. Yeah. And I mean, this is like a rough estimate, but I think that's basically right. Like if you look at wages where they are and then you kind of, you take off a couple percentage points for things like productivity and maybe sort of a one-time shift in the in the distribution between profits and, and wages, which I think are both reasonable things to be doing in this case. Yeah. You get to like three to 4% underlying inflation, which is faster. It's a lot faster, but you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's a real thing. And that's showing up in things like, you know, rents and stuff. But, like, it's obviously not the bulk of what's going on. I mean, inflation this year is running, like, probably over 10%. We just take, like, the first six months of this year, like, probably over 10% annualized. So 4% out of that is not the bulk of what's going on. Okay. And so, but it, but it's there. It is there. And, I, I you know, we can't, we shouldn't deny that it's that is a factor. Okay. Well, Matt, we're going to have to leave aside a whole lot of other things. But I'm really glad that we were able to cover the conceptual basics here, which I think is going to be really great and really useful, especially for people who aren't like us and who don't have, you know, their faces buried in economic data points all the time because they have real lives to lead. So um, I want to close with uh, a dangerous question, if you will, which is to look at where inflation could be headed in the near future. And I say it's dangerous because last year, a lot of people were saying that inflation could be temporary or that the phrase that they were using was transitory. And Basically, what happened was that last year people said that, and then there were more shocks to the <laughs> to the economy, the Ukraine-Russia war, and all kinds of other things uh, that were terrible. And that could happen again. So we'll we'll leave that caveat out there. We'll just say there could be future shocks. But other than that, when we look at the trends now, we see, as you mentioned, that wages are still growing at a healthy clip, but not as fast as they were earlier in the year. We see other signs that the labor market is ever so gently starting to cool. For example, there's fewer job openings now than there were, I think, a month or two ago. Um, still elevated. Again, the labor market is very strong, but that's happening. Uh, we've seen that gas prices at the pump have been falling as well, and some commodities prices have also been in decline, not just oil prices finally are starting to fall, but also a lot of industrial metals. And so when you put together all the trends that you're seeing now, do you see some disinflationary pressures emerging? What do you think? Well, I, I will say that the, a lot of the things that people pointed to when they were worried about inflation before it showed up have all moved in the other direction at this point. Oh, what do you mean? So... um a lot of people who were worried about inflation showing up before it did were pointing at two things. They were looking at the money supply, which is, you know, different ways of counting it, but like, you know, whatever you take that to be. Yeah. And they looked at government budget balance, you know, the federal deficit, and they were looking at measures of the job market, like you were talking about, like the job openings rate and the quit rate. All those things have moved in pretty away from where they were. Oh, yeah. That that that's really I'm sorry, to interrupt, Matt. That's really important. Let me just just uh, flesh that out just a little bit, okay? When you say the government budget deficit has fallen by a lot, the reason this matters is that when the government was spending all this money to boost the economy in 2020 and 2021, it was, of course, doing it by borrowing the money that it could then use to spend. And that borrowed money shows up as the government deficit. That deficit has come down by a lot since the end of last year, Okay, when you talk about like the money supply, this is sometimes thought to be like an extremely imprecise to the point of useless, but still looked at measure of how much money is out there in the economy. And there was a big increase in the money supply last year, but ever since, the growth in the money supply has come down substantially. And so what you're saying is that last year, all that stimulative stuff happened, not happening anymore, right? Right. Okay. I mean, it's very clear... I mean, the, the basic argument for why people thought 
that the inflation after economic reopening would be a one-off, you know, whatever word you want to use to describe that. But the reason is because it was one time. Like, the pandemic happened. All the stuff that we did in response to the pandemic happened. And then, you know, the extent that that stops happening, maybe it will take a while to adjust, but at some point that will stop, and then we'll get back to where we were. Or some new, you know, balanced state. And I think that basic argument still makes a lot of sense. And I think it's very clearly showing up when the the growth rate in various measures of the money supply, whether it's just like the amount of money in bank, checking accounts and money funds, or whether it's like broader measures that includes like, you know, credit card spending limits and whatever. Whatever you look at, it went from like 30 to 40% a year at the peak in like early 2021 to like 4% a year, which is basically what it was, if not lower than before the pandemic. The government budget deficit went from whatever, you know, to like trillions of dollars at the peak to like the, the the budget deficit, if we just look at the first six months of this year, the lowest it's been in almost a decade. And relative size of the economy, obviously, it's way smaller. It's, it's close to zero, actually, which is kind of remarkable. <laughs> which is shocking. Now, yeah. It's been right. a while. I mean, right. I don't know if that's going to be sustained. I mean, to be honest, I don't I mean, think it no. will because a no. lot, but like whatever. Like the point is like, if that's what you're looking at, like that's not that's not pointing in that direction. The number of people quitting their jobs to find a better job, which puts up upward pressure on wages and stuff, that's gone down. I mean, it's still high, but it's definitely going down. You mentioned commodities price. I think it's a great example. Like, a lot of stuff is way down. I think a lot of it's down because people are worried about, you know, an economic downturn rather than more supply. So who knows whether that will sustain. This is not, you know, trading advice, but, like, just mechanically, that is going to show up at some point in lower prices. I mean, like, oil prices have gone down to the extent that if you expect some normal flow through from from crude oil prices to gasoline prices that that's going to show up i mean maybe i'm not sure exactly which month it will be but like maybe next month or something like that's going to be have a big impact um on what shows up in the inflation measures so all of this stuff is pointing in that direction but the likeliest outcome assuming no like further crazy disruptions which is also what i've been saying for you know a year so <laughs> bear in that sure. bear in mind sure, what sure. you will but like all these sort of idiosyncratic weird stuff will eventually fade away Maybe it'll it'll be like add zero to inflation. Maybe it'll actually subtract from inflation as prices go down. I don't know, but it's going to kind of kind of converge to whatever the underlying rate is, which I said is probably right now in like the three to four range a year. Um, but if wage growth slows a bunch, then it would be less than that. So I don't, you know, is inflation peaked? Or whatever, I have no idea. But like that, I think is sort of the way I would think about it. You know, there's a lot of dangers in the horizon. I mean, you know, it, it, right now the Nord Stream pipeline that connects Russia and gas to Germany and then to a lot of Europe is, like, taken down for maintenance. Not clear if they'll put it back up when maintenance is finished. I mean, I don't know. That'll, that could be, like, a huge issue, right? And the extent that it, that happens and Europeans pay more to import natural gas from the U.S., like, that's going to show up here. I mean, like, who knows, right? Like, there are, like, a lot of wild cards here. I don't want to say that, like, it's clearly going to be um, going down, but yeah, who knows? That's the TLDR answer is uh, who knows, yeah. but the, the pressures knows? are heading downwards. Uh, okay, Matt, we're out of time, so we got to wrap it up there. Hang tight for a second because I've got a bunch of housekeeping uh, for the podcast, and then we'll we'll close it out. Um, so yeah, first off, you might recall that on last week's listener Q and A episode, uh, a listener had asked Amy and me for our third favorite dinosaurs, uh, and in that answer, Amy at one point made a jest about the work of archaeologists digging up fossils. Uh, well, many thanks to listener Duncan Finlay for writing in to tell us that it is paleontologists who do that work. Uh, and we're awfully grateful to our listeners uh, who write in. And also, I'm just delighted um, that folks who are experts in paleontology uh, are listening to the show and getting something out of it. So many thanks for that, Duncan. Uh, second correction, a few of you noticed that I mispronounced Patreon, which I had previously been pronouncing Patreon forever, which is just wrong. So my bad. I just did not know. Uh, last thing on the listener Q&A episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to listener Patty Nakayoki, who wrote in response to a segment last week, when I had mentioned that in my late 20s and early 30s, I attended a lot of friends' weddings, uh, including traveling to some far-off places for them, and it was terribly expensive, and I couldn't afford it, and so I was always whining about the excesses of the wedding industrial complex. And listener Patty wrote in to say that she is 65 years old and that most of her trips now are to see friends who are having a tough time of it, who are having quite severe health problems. Uh, they're too sick to visit her, so she visits 
them. And so Patty essentially wrote in to say, hey, if you're young enough to be taking trips for happy occasions, be grateful and count your blessings because it won't last forever. And I think that's just a lovely and a poignant sentiment. And I wanted to say thanks to Patty for the note. Uh, next up, the new bazaar has just a few episodes left in season one. And I just wanted to preemptively remind folks to stay subscribed in between the end of season one and season two, just so you'll know when season two has arrived. Uh, and also because Amy and I are likely to do some bonus surprise episodes in between the seasons, uh, mainly because we just can't help ourselves. We've got some ideas. Dang it. We're going to pursue them. And finally, Amy and I are on the road, so next week's episode might be delayed by a few days, but rest assured that it is coming. And in the meantime, if you want to hear more from us in a different medium, please check out our blog at bizarreaudio.com slash blog, where I will be answering listener questions that we don't get to on the podcast. Uh, check it out. Again, that's bizarreaudio.com slash blog. And the first listener question I have answered is about the book that had the biggest influence on me, and it's actually two books. Uh, that post is up already. Uh, okay, that's all the housekeeping. Matt Klein, always such a pleasure, man. Thanks for sitting through that and for hanging out on The New Bazaar. Thanks very much for having me, Cardiff. And that's our show for this week. You can find links to Matt's writing on inflation in his Overshoot Substack newsletter in the show notes for this episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice, and if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>